doc is it's a title that is without question earned and it's earned through oftentimes pain it's earned through oftentimes mental emotional and physical anguish where we get to stand amongst warfighters and amongst these heroes and say we belong welcome to war dogs the military medicine podcast this show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Chief David Shepherdson is a Navy corpsman currently serving as the senior enlisted leader for the 6th Marines at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. In this episode, Chief Shepherdson describes his pathway in Navy medicine, including his deployments with Marine units to Afghanistan and his time with SEAL Team 1. He discusses his leadership philosophy, lessons learned, and advice he tries to instill in others. He discusses a hospital corpsman's role with Marine units. Dave and guest host Chief Peter McGuire give a unique first-hand insight into Marine Corps medicine. I'm your host, Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon, and I'm joined by co-host Peter McGuire, active duty, independent duty corpsman. You can find out more about Chief David Shepherdson and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. Welcome to Wardox. On this episode, we have guest host Peter McGuire, a special operations independent duty corpsman and current senior enlisted leader with the 2nd Reconnaissance Battalion and past Wardox guest. Pete, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Today, we'll also be joined by Chief David Shepherdson, a corpsman currently serving as a senior enlisted leader for the 6th Marines at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Thanks, Wayne. Stoked to be on the show, man. Appreciate y'all having me. So, Dave, let's start off by, why don't you tell us about your pathway to joining the military? Okay. Yeah. So, I, I've been in the Navy 15 years. I really was never focused on the military. My joining the military, specifically the Navy as a Fleet Marine Force corpsman, was kind of born out of trauma. So I had a pathway set in high school. Actually, my current wife set me on this trajectory. She said, you need to do something besides listen to music and surf. And so I, I got into fire explorers and, and I was a fire explorer for three years. My path was the EMS realm. I graduated high school a little early, went straight into, become, I became an EMT. I was working as an EMT in Southern California, building my hours up to go become a paramedic and then eventually a paramedic firefighter. And I had a unique set of circumstances that happened that ended in the loss of life of one of my patients. That was absolutely without question my fault. And, and I fell kind of into a dark place mentally, carrying this weight and this burden of this young man's life on my head and struggling with it for about a week or so. I would say that God put in my heart that I, I needed to do something bigger than myself. And so I, I walked into the Marine Corps recruiter's office and said, hey, I want to be in the Marine Corps. And they said, fantastic, devil, sit down. So I took a seat and started filling out paperwork. They said, what do you want to do in the Marine Corps? I said, well, I want to be in the infantry. They said, even better. And this is 2007 timeframe, height of the war. So they were, they were hungry for people. And as I'm filling out paperwork to join the Marine Corps infantry, I said, well, what do you want to do in the infantry? There's quite a bit you can do. I said, I want to be a medic. And they said, stop right there. That's not a thing, guy. The thank, thank God that this, this staff sergeant, I, I believe it was a staff sergeant, ripped up my paperwork and hand walked me into the Navy and they said, get this warfighter a Fleet Marine Force Corpsman contract. I ended up going to MEPS two or three times before they'd guarantee me that I would go with the Fleet Marine Force, specifically the infantry. They said, yeah, we can make you a corpsman or a special operator, whatever you want to do, just can't guarantee Fleet Marine Force. Um, so I walked out of MEPS a few times. 
eventually after after kind of staying hard on on that because that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to go and and serve my country and protect my brothers in arms downrange. And eventually that that is what happened in 2008. Joined the Navy, core school field med, and I think it was about 13 months later after joining the Navy, I was in Afghanistan. Dave, I, I love that. So my story is so similar, man. I, I actually talked to a retired Marine gunny and I, I literally said those same words. My, mine was, I want to be a Marine medic. And he was like, yeah, man, wrong service. Well, <laughs> walk down the road. Um, and obviously I love that. I love that a Marine saw the future benefit. And I bet that guy had a bunch of prior history with Corbin that was really significant. And that that was what led him to want to get you in the right place. I think that's really cool. Ooh, one thing, could you expound on what a fire explorer is? I've never heard of that. So uh, you heard of like police cadet, same exact thing, but for the fire service. So I would go, I had like a cool little uniform and a little, little tie or whatever. I'd go to my fire station, local fire station, uh, I believe it was 76 in Menifee, California. I'd walk in there once a week and we would practice things, clean the rig, we'd go to competitions and compete on like bailing water and things like that. It's basically like a junior firefighter. So you get to hang out at the station for four or five hours once a week and learn the craft. Uh, it's really like a step in the right direction for joining That's the fire That's really service. cool, man. I've never heard of that. I love it. So how would you compare the training of an EMT to that of being a hospital corpsman? Uncomparable, Wayne. I, I would say e EMT is, is so basic where you're given what oral glucagon, nitrous if it's their own, and some oxygen, maybe glorified vital science tech with a little bit of spine boarding or, or slapping dudes on, you know, on any type of XKED stuff. But as a corpsman, it, we're so unique in that what we actually do is really determined by our surgeon. You know, your scope of care is written based on your capability and your ability and, and what you can learn. So it, it's comparable in that it's emergent frontline, you're a first responder, so to speak. But the, the medical skill sets, I would say, aren't comparable at all. So how would you say that the U.S. Navy Hospital Corps School and your initial training prepares you for performing your duties as a corpsman downrange? I would say Corps School did its job. It gave me a fundamentals of anatomy, uh, a little bit of physiology, kind of a, a good broad strokes of medicine and how the human body works. And I, I think that Corps School back in 08 did, did exactly what it was supposed to do. Some basic venipuncture, really simple techniques that we can take and then build upon with either OJT or C school. And that's, you know, I went core school, then field med and field, field medical training battalion. I went to FMTB West, did, did its job as well. It really prepared me for Marine Corps culture and what, what it meant to be a corpsman, but more specifically a doc, which, which is a title that is earned as, as both of you fine gentlemen know. Field med really just got you to understand like, hey, this is what it's going to be like. People are going to yell at you. It's going to be difficult. It's got, not going to be super fun, but it is rewarding in those small times where we unfortunately have to put our skills as a corpsman, not as like an O3 DOC, which is what I consider myself, but as a corpsman to work, you're, re you're ready for them. But really in, in the same way where core school was, uh, was building blocks to build upon, field med is, is very similar. Here's the baseline. Now go out and learn from your platoon sergeant, learn from your squad leader, learn from your fire team leader, learn from the senior lance who knows how to disannounce the 240 or 249 golf when we used to use saws or whatever that that may be. So I think it did well, but the foundation is critical. But the real learning takes place when you get integrated into your platoon, into your battalion or whatever that may be. It's different for different people. But those Marines, those Tefalunin that come to your side and say, hey, you're my doc, let me train you on not just, you, yes, you're, you're second class who back in 
<laughs> when you're an HN, a second class, and E5 is God, who trains you through trial by fire and difficult seasons, is just as important as that Lance Corporal who teaches you the Marine Corps fundamentals of, of warfighting. And, and something I want to, I guess, clarify is that what Dave's talking about is one Corman A school, which is, oh man, Dave, how long is that now? Is it four months? Yeah, I'd say about four months. Yeah, so that's your primary training as a corpsman in the Navy, similar to your 68 Whiskey Medics in the Army. Right. Now, Field Medical Training Battalion is, that's the training that you're required to go to if you're going to serve with the Marine Corps unit. And so every corpsman that serves with the Fleet Marine Force has gone to Field Medical Training Battalion. And that's basically your first real exposure to what it's like to work with Marines. You have Navy instructors as well as Marine Corps instructors. And that's a lot of times the, the first time guys are shooting assault rifles, getting exposed to how to conduct an ambush, as well as just learning your tactical combat casualty care. Um, and that's a two-month course. So realistically, a guy, a corpsman who joins the Navy is going to go to boot camp, he's going to go to A school, and then he's going to go to field med, and then he's going to check in to one of the, one of the Marine units after that. But what's really interesting, especially about that time frame that Dave was talking about, that's about the same time I joined up and went through all the same training. And so many of those instructors were coming right off of combat deployments. And so you just had this wealth of knowledge that was getting poured into you. And obviously you're motivated to be there. You're, you're ready to work. But man, you would just have these experiences where a guy would be like, yeah, a year ago, this is what it was like when we stormed that machine gun nest. And you're just like, holy cow, dude, this is so real. Well, tell us about your early career in the Marine Corps. How do hospital corpsmen fit within those units that we're now talking about when they show up? Right. Great question. So my, my path was a like, like a lots, like Pete, a little different. I went straight boot camp, core school, field medical training battalion, uh, straight to an infantry battalion. I went to third battalion, fourth Marines out in the beautiful 29 Palm, <laughs> California. And, and within a few weeks after being received by third battalion, fourth Marines, I was put into an infantry company, India company, third platoon, first squad. And I was given a, a position on this team. They said, you are on this fire team. That would be first fire team. And so my, my early time in the Marine Corps was really shaped more by my squad leader, by my fire team leader, as I learned how to warfight. As we know, the best medicine on the battlefield is fire superiority. And so that's what really my early days, really I checked in and then eight months later was in Afghanistan. So I had a very tight window to prep to go to war. And we knew where we were going. We knew more or less what we were doing. And and so it was, it was very, very quick that I was out running ranges, live fire, and, and having to be that guy, uh, not only to s attack a target or suppress the enemy, but also take care of casualties when, when we received them in training, which it, it was fast. And, and at the time, I was 20 years old. I, I didn't know what, really what I was doing. And I was, I was really being taught, like Pete said, by my seniors. And my senior seniors, some of these guys were the initial Fallujah dudes. It was all based in real life. A lot of the training that we received was exactly what Pete said, because they had lived it, they had breathed it. I remember my first platoon sergeant, Staff Sergeant Como, he would give me a really hard time whenever I, I engaged the enemy. I remember during my first deployment in Afghanistan, I was at a small patrol base and we were patrolling three times a day, every day. I was me and one other corpsman and our rotation went patrol post QRF. And so we split that up. So basically two out of three days you were patrolling and we took contact at our patrol base on, a, on about a weekly basis. And every time Staff Sergeant Como would see me on a wall or on a roof engaging the enemy, he would rip me down. He's a big gentleman. He'd rip me down and shove me behind a wall. And at the time, I was very confused. Like, man, why, why is the staffs aren't doing this to me? It's because he, he understood that I was the guy to save their lives. I was the guy that had the knowledge. And so he protected me 
like nobody else. And he would scream at me whenever I engaged the enemy and say, Doc, get back. What are you doing? You're not a Marine. So, so my early years were really shaped. A gentleman by the name of Sarn Estrada really pushed me to be stronger, faster, better, learn more, know more, both about Marine Corps infantry tactics and, and medicine. I had some good senior corpsmen that really poured their lives out so that I could be here today talking to you with all my appendages and most of my sanity is because those warfighters took the time to develop me and sacrifice their time, energy, and everything that they had to prepare me to, to go warfight. And Dave, what, what's that like being in a infantry platoon? And, and what I mean specifically is how many corpsmen are in a infantry platoon? Can you remind me, Dave? I can, I can indeed, brother. So you, you should have two in a platoon. So usually you get about nine per company. So you get one senior line and then eight corpsmen, two per platoon. So they have to split a squad, so to speak, when it comes to being on that squad or, or you, you create combat lifesaver Marines that can aid us in our job, which is critical. But the successful corpsmen are the ones who, who understand their place in the platoon. And, and what, I, what I mean by that is you're a Marine until someone gets hurt. So if your Lance Corporals are filling sandbags, you're filling sandbags. If they're digging a fighting position, let's say into the defense, you're digging a fighting position into the defense. We take on, really as, as corpsmen in a platoon, you, you put on the identity of a United States Marine. There's a reason that we wear the same uniform that has the EGA on it. There's a reason that our FMF pin has the Eagle Globe and Anchor on it. Because as a platoon corpsman, the expectation is for so much more than just to be the doc. It's to also be another E3 pseudo Lance Corporal in a platoon or a squad. And, and sometimes that comes with things that aren't the most fun. <laughs> but that's life in a platoon of my 15 years. And I, I've been around a little bit in the Navy and done a few different things, some pretty cool stuff. And by far, my favorite time in, in the military has been as a platoon corpsman preparing for and deploying. Uh, does question. anybody ever mess with the corpsman? Is that a thing? Absolutely. Well, <laughs> there's the brotherly love of messing with one another. But if someone else messes with one of their corpsmen, it is a, an absolute no-go. Your squad leaders, your team leader may, may mess around with your corpsman mm -hmm. lovingly. But if, if another Marine from even another company or platoon even look sideways at a corpsman, your, your devils will eat them alive. Because it's not, you're not the doc. That is my doc, if you understand. And I think that's one of the big things that is so special about the Navy Marine Corps relationship. It's like, man, there is such a level of ownership over those corpsmen. Like, and that's, I mean, that's every corpsman I think I've ever talked to who's been attached to the Marines, especially in those ground fighting forces. And I mean, it's really special, right? Like, I mean, the, the corpsman not only is the doc, but he, he's also acting as a rifleman. And then on top of that, he might be the guy that they go to for emotional support or for acting as the chaplain, acting as the doctor, acting as the psych. I mean, everything. It's a really special relationship. Yeah, I agree with you, Pete. It's funny because of that relationship is built so early on in the Marine Corps. They tend to rely on you, like you said, for everything and even random things like, hey, doc, you got any electrical tape? Like, bro, <laughs> no, I don't have electrical tape. Like, what are you talking about? Here's the Motrin, change your socks, go back to work, warfighter. But that relationship is... And, and something I think that I, I want to point out early is that Dave is actually getting pinned to E8 tomorrow morning to be a senior chief. And, and I think what's really great is that we still have those same kinds of relationships with Marines. It just looks different now. You know, you're not the 20-year-old kid running around doing his thing, but that you are transitioning into a phase where in your career, you're now the person that the battalion commander goes to, just looking for advice and perspective 
because that Corman dynamic is just honestly so strong and so recognizable. Well, I was just going to say, when you're dealing with all those medical issues, what do you think is the hardest part on your deployment of dealing with all the mental, physical aspects that come up with the unit you're deployed with? Wow. I would say the hardest part is knowledge. As much as they cram into field med and into core school, we don't, we don't have all the knowledge. And for me, being 20 years old as the senior medical provider at my patrol base, I had books on books. I had a, a senior line, his name was Dan Daly, who, who really, pushed, he really pushed medical books on me. And at the time, I was like, man, what are you talking about, bro? I'm a warfighter. But then I'm on a patrol base by myself and dude comes up to me with rash here or this there. I'm like, I have no idea what that is. Let me look it up. So a lot of the difficult parts from the medical perspective is knowledge. Well, the one thing I did have, uh, which was nice, was we at least had a Gringer radio. I could call back to my battalion surgeon. And that's another unique relationship of a platoon corpsman is that to their IDC, their independent duty corpsman, or to their surgeon to be able to rely on their credentials and say, hey, doc, as we call, I call my surgeon doc. I say, hey, doc what do I do with this? How do I treat this? What, what should I do with this? So from a medical perspective, it's the knowledge piece. And I would encourage any person who wants to become a corpsman, is a young corpsman, to continue to grow. I would encourage them to have a hunger for knowledge from a medical perspective, because where we stand today is not in peacetime. We are absolutely without question heading somewhere. And that somewhere is going to be dark. It's going to be difficult. It is going to be like nothing any of us talking here today have seen and we, we may not be ready. So we need to just be hung, hungry to learn everything that we can so that if we do get into these situations, we have the knowledge. Yeah, and I, I would say that one of the big challenges that you face too is that there's such a sense of loyalty inside your platoon. And that's a, that's a hard thing in itself for young people to grapple with is because maybe you have a Lance Corporal who has an STD. And he wants to come to you and he wants you to take care of that on the down low without bringing it up to hire or letting you know us now. But if you're not a provider who can prescribe those medications, then it puts you in a hard position because they have an expectation. And at the same time, you are also, you have very clear roles and a, a clear scope of practice. And I've seen that loyalty challenge happen to, I would say, most corpsmen. The, the corpsmen that have high trust in their platoons always face that to some degree, which is another reason why we as senior leaders have to stay engaged with these guys and make sure that we can keep everybody on the, st the straight and narrow. So you're presently a tactical combat casualty care instructor. In your opinion, what are the most critical areas that need to be trained to prepare medics and corpsmen for real world, prolonged field care scenarios and care in austere locations? I would say the basics are, are critical. You can't prolong a life if you've lost it initially. So that speed and intensity on getting in, getting to your casualty, treating that massive hemorrhage, and that whole march algorithm is super critical and being so proficient at it that one would say you could do it in your sleep. I would, I would challenge that and say do it without sleep for five days. After you haven't slept for five days and you've hiked 30 clicks and you've been engaged with the enemy and, and you've lost a brother or two and the emotional weight is weighing down upon you, then being able to, to crush TCCC tactical combat casualty care. I would say those building blocks are critical, but not critical sitting here in my house while my four kids are out and about with mama bear. I could slap a tourniquet all day. But what about after that hike? What about after lack of sleep for extended period of time? It's really those foundations that prevent that onset of death and, and allow us to progress into prolonged casualty care. When it does come to that prolonged casualty care, I'm going to 
error back to just knowledge in general. We need to get better at, at learning more and being okay with not knowing and saying, hey, I don't know, please teach me this. The humility to say you don't know something is going to be the difference between life and death. Something that I failed out early in my career because of what Pete was talking about, that integrity. I shot from the hip a lot. I was 20 years old. I was in Afghanistan. How about this med? And just throw things at people. Well, I had a safety net in Afghan, both in Farah province and in Helmand province. I could get someone off the deck if I did something wrong or, or, or acted on my own accord and, and was wrong very, very quickly. That is not the future fight. So really understanding more than just TCCC is critical, but I would say TCCC is that those building blocks that we build upon. And, and something I'd caveat with this, I mean, I feel like I'm just a professional hype man for David this point, but he's actually really leading the way with the second Marine Division right now in reassessing what it looks like for our, our performance checklists in regards to medical care. And something that I think both of us can acknowledge pretty easily from our perspective inside the second Mardiv is that there is a very real concern that not only is our TCCC training, that it, that it could be done more consistently and more effectively. Not that it's not being done well now, but it's to say that when we look at that next fight with less support, that these guys, they need to understand the stress of hard training now so that they can be prepared for that because they're going to be operating more independently. They're going to have a, a longer evac time. And realistically, it's, it's going to be a, a much harder place for them to be. Yeah, I think one of the things you're really pointing out is that when you're in a deployed environment, regardless of what your medical job is, you don't have enough resources. You don't have the expertise that you need. And I think pretty much everybody ends up having to do something that's a little bit outside of their comfort zone. But the military sets you up for a good foundation to be able to at least accomplish the mission or call somebody to help you out. No, one of the things I want to say about Dave, too. Dave, can you talk to us about what it looks like for you to bring a new corpsman into your BAS, your battalion aid station? I absolutely can, <laughs> Pete. Thanks for asking. So for me, I, I am about empowering. I set the pace as the chief or, or my chief. It's really my E5s that are the driving force behind getting a brand new corpsman. Well, the very first thing we do day one, I sit them on a couch and and I uh, was at 1-6 for about a year before they they pulled me out, anticipating me putting on E8 and put me up in the regiment. But as we were prepping for this deployment on the 26 Mew, day one that the, the sailor is sitting in their whites or their blues, I would sit them down on the couch and I'd ask them one question. I would say, are you ready to die today? And and depending on how they answered that question, it would really dictate the conversation. But I would I would let them know that this is where you're joining a war fighting organization. You need to come to grips with the fact that you need to be prepared to lay down your life for those around you. And if you're not, you need to change your perspective extremely quickly because that's what people expect of you. Following that long conversation about the, the necessity for a war fighting mindset with the storm clouds of war brewing on the horizons, we must put on this war fighting mindset. Immediately leaving that office, my, my new corpsman would go straight into a trauma lane and they would be assessed by my senior lines. Um, and they would be put through, I would say, about an hour or so of rigorous physical exercise and then into a trauma lane. And after that trauma lane, we would do one more trauma lane so we could understand where they were at with the intent to build them up to where they needed to be and then so on. These trauma lanes that we would run these corpsmen through on day one would, would not help us weed them in or out because they're in. I don't pick from field med who, who comes to my battalion. I don't get to choose. It's not a thing. It's corpsman wants to be a corpsman. Oh no, you're, you're FMF. You're going to an infantry battalion. Some people don't want to be there. 
it's my job as the chief to get them to want to be there. Because without buy-in, in, in our line of work, if you don't have buy-in, people die. And, and, and that blood will rest heavy on your head to a point that'll cause more death in, in years to follow. So creating that buy-in is critical. And then sharpening those skills, assessing where they are at TCCC, and then building them up to where they can go to TCCC, CMC, get that PCC, that Valkyrie, things that when I was in Afghanistan was only the, the MARSOC or the teams were doing body-to-body blood transfusion. It was something that we didn't touch. We didn't talk about. The coolest thing that we had back then was like an interosteum fast one, like, oh, you put a fast one in. But, but now we are training our corpsmen better. We are doing better. But to, to Pete's point, we can always be better. And I think that's the striving to, to be better. There is no best. It's just be better with everything. I, I love that. And I, I think one of the things that I, I don't think we can overestimate enough whenever it comes to the senior enlisted guys, and that's, that's, that's corpsmen, that's your Marines, that's anybody, is that it is your job to create buy-in. You know, one of the challenges that I think that we see with the medical corps is that they are already highly motivated and highly successful upon arrival. And that's great, right? Like we need those people. We need their expertise. The challenge that guys like me and Dave have is that maybe you have a 19-year-old who failed out of college, realized he didn't have any other options, and now he's your problem. And it's not to say that he's a problem, but it's to say, I have to take a guy, mold him, mentor him, and then create an asset. And then I have to employ him effectively, and then we can make the mission. What would you say is the greatest challenge in trying to accomplish this? I would say that the greatest challenge in trying to accomplish that is kind of what we, what Pete had hit on. You never know what you're going to get. And so some guys are, are halfway bought in and you got to sell them a little bit. Some guys are negative and, and they show up coming from a clinic where they hate their life and they just want to get out. So I, I'd say the greatest challenge is the mind. We can shape bodies. I can do a lot with a body. Give me six months. I can, I can create a warfighter. But getting the buy-in, I, I think that General Dempsey, when he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, wrote a white paper called The Profession of Arms. And so when, when I have someone that doesn't have buy-in, I generally start there. But whether I quote it or send it to them, it is fantastic. And I really talk about what, what the profession of arms is and that we are part of something larger than ourselves because I am nothing special. Pete, you're nothing special, though I love you. Wayne, you seem special, but I'm going to say you're nothing special. <laughs> but the, the, the sum of us is what is important. And so the, the largest challenge is the person's mindset, where they came from. Sometimes they're scarred from a previous chief. The, what Pete had mentioned about me putting on senior chief tomorrow, I'm doing an eight kilometer hike on the beach at 04 by my own choosing. A lot of people don't want to do that, which is, which is okay. But I will stand here today and, and say that I am the chief and will be the senior chief that leads from the front. And in the infantry, we hike. So for me to put on eight, I have to hike. I have to do what my E3 is willing and able to do. I should be able to do as a senior enlisted leader. So I would say the most difficult challenge is, is the mind and, and working from, from someone who doesn't understand war fighting. And, and to me and Pete and, and you, Wayne, like we get it. We joined to go to war. Uh, some of these gentlemen joined for money, for college, for a way out, which can be difficult to prep them to lay down their life when that's what they joined for. But how would you say you're past deployments have shaped the way you train units and others for future deployments when they're going to go for their first time? That's a great question, Wayne. It is probably the second motivator that that is for me to train and to develop and to mentor is because of my past deployments. I know what it takes and it takes more than you think. I know, I know what the toll is on the mind. I know what the toll is on the body. And so when I train these guys, I try not to be Captain Sea Story, but 
sometimes it's healthy. And I would encourage any senior enlisted leader or senior enlisted medical professional or any, any leader in the military to share, their, share your stories. Um, what we've done and where we've been to us, whether we hate it or love it, it, it happened. And, and to some of these kids, some of these young, young warfighters, that's a distant thought, something that isn't being encouraged in this current culture, selflessness. And as, as the three of us can sit here and say today, we do this not for ourselves, but for those around us, that idea or that ideal, it can be foreign to some of these young men. Hey, Dave, a quick question. Where were you whenever 9-11 happened? I was in high school, grade school. I was Mr. Lee's math class, I think, if I remember correctly, or on my way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the, kind of the point I'm driving at is that like you remember that specifically. Now we have guys who were born in 2005, right? And, and they, they don't have that as a frame of reference. They don't have that as a, a, a step-off point. And I think that's where you're absolutely right. Like sharing those stories, it can not only provide a, a perspective that maybe they are seeking to, to kind of draw into themselves, right? I think that's one of the, the greatest challenges that I saw as an early guy in, early in my career was that I wanted to be more a part of the culture. I wanted to be more, I wanted to feel like what I was doing mattered and that I was contributing to a team. And it's really hard for people to feel like that if they don't actually know what that culture is, if they don't have leaders exemplifying that. And I, I think that's something that you do extremely well. Like, bro, you're one of the most motivated guys I know. And God bless you, sir. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Thanks, brother. I appreciate that, man. But now you've also spent some time with SEAL Team One. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, I was there for, for about a year and a half. I did a, a quick workup and a CENTCOM deployment with them. It was very unique. It was very interesting. I, f- I found it mildly challenging at first, and I ate a quick slice of humble pie and, and went ahead and got on board. The unique difference between the SEAL teams and the infantry is that the SEAL teams, you are an enabler. And some see that term as derogatory. I do not. You are there to help the soft medics, uh, the SOCOMs, and, and the team do their job more efficiently whether that's taking care of medical readiness, supporting them on ranges. Some corpsmen, warfighters, have a hard time at the SEAL teams when they're LO3 alphas or even IDCs and they go there and they understand that at an infantry battalion, you are part of the team. You are a a gun in the fight. At a SEAL team, not so much unless they choose that to use you as that kind of asset. So taking a humble step back and saying to myself, like, hey, I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to thank God for this opportunity. And enjoy wearing little black shorts every day and calling my CO Dave or whatever. I just enjoying it for what it is and understanding that I wasn't a warfighter and and it's just staying humble really kept me let me have a good time there. It was it was a great experience to see the caliber of gentlemen that that joined the that organization. Just like any other organization, some were great, some were horrible. To be honest. It's just just human beings and and I'm sure Pete can attest to that in the recon community in every community. Some are fantastic, some are not, but the keys to success in the SEAL teams is humility. And I enjoyed it. I got to do some very unique things. What do you think is the best way for a corpsman once they've been either on a deployment where maybe it's low op tempo or they're maybe in that clinic job you were talking about earlier, what do you think is the best way for them to continue to maintain the skills that are necessary for deployment? Okay, yeah, great question. So first I'll speak to those in the infantry. I will say stay hungry and continue to train one another. While we do have mannequins and, and we have some amazing pieces of gear out there that breathe and speak and bleed and yell and move, slaying your body and doing tourniquet drills on one another is by far the, the best way to stay sharp. 
is challenging one another while in the infantry and taking it seriously. As you progress from a warfighting organization, it's extremely difficult to keep that mindset on. So I left 3-4 after two back-to-back combat deployments with a short nine-month gap in between the two. I was gone for eight, came home for nine, went straight back to I went straight to Hellman for another eight months right after a nine-month respite, but really was a workup time frame. Immediately following that second deployment, I went to Naval Health Clinic Hawaii in 2012. It was difficult. I attribute my me being here today to talk to you to, to two individuals. One is, is the creator, God Almighty, and number two is a guy by the name of Chez Harris. He was a chief who took me under his wing and said, hey there, warfighter, uh, you want to be successful. Let me show you how to take what you learn in the infantry and do that in the clinic. And I did. I, st- I got on the TCCC team there. I started teaching at the regional level. I was teaching SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 1 all over K-Bay and really trying to take my experiences and share that with the, the people at the clinic. It, it was still difficult to be in that atmosphere. They kind of hid me in a corner and patient admin for a while until I learned how to work with females and civilians because the Marine Corps has a tendency to bring out the most vulgar in you. So I had a, a short little time in patient admin that I got to get my head on right. But the chief at the time, I don't say the chief lightly, I say my chief, Ches Harris, took me under his wing and, and showed me what it meant to be a warfighter in the clinic and to understand that we can still have an impact on the fight from clinical medicine, whether that's supporting the warfighter by taking care of them and their families or teaching, teaching what we know to the people who want to hear it. Yeah, and I'll reiterate that all day, man. Just doing basic training on each other is is the way to build consistency and to build just all the the muscle memory, right? Like, I mean, Dave, I would dare to say that you can still put on a tourniquet in under 30 seconds, probably because you were punished for a very long time if you couldn't. And, and it's because you do it all the time, not only so you don't get punished, but so that you could actually be great at the skill. And then one day you wake up and you realize, man, this is just a part of me now. Now, I, I do want to point out, okay, so we've got a, a chief petty officer. Well, actually, we've got two on the line, but I want to hear Dave's perspective. Dave, can you please describe the uniqueness of the chief petty officer, kind of how that works in the Navy and how that may be different than other branches? Okay, yeah. So I can only speak from from what I know. I spent my first three years as a chief at a training command in the amphibious rage branch teaching, teaching Marines, but I really got to see what a chief did from a lot of different rates. There were all sorts of chiefs from different rates at this training command. And I then was there for three years and came to the infantry. I've been here for two years. But being a chief in the Navy isn't a chief. It is the chief. It is a very stark difference between just an an E7 uh, and the E7. So we are looked at from E6 and below as the guy to ask the question and to go to. And from, I would say, the 04 or maybe even 05 and below on the officer side, as the person who has the experience and the knowledge and the know-how and the understanding of the culture to inform decision-making. Being the chief is having the humility to say, I don't know this answer, but I will find it for you. And not, not making promises, but being dedicated to being truly a servant leader. And if you were to ask me my leadership philosophy, it would, it's based from TCCC and from being a chief. My leadership philosophy is situation-based servant leadership. That's what I believe is the best type of leadership, using the situation at hand to help inform a decision that's best for the person that's going to be affected by the decision. Selfless servant leadership based on the situation. So a, a chief in the Navy, to me, is a, is a situation-based servant leader who is humble enough to say, I don't know, let me find that answer for you, and who will bend over backwards for, for any person above or below them. Creating that link from the lower enlisted to that officer 
and pushing knowledge out both ways and pulling it from everyone around them. Man, that was way better than I could have said it. So, so I, I think I heard, now I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this quote, but officers run the Navy, but the Navy cannot run without the chiefs. And, and there's something that I think it's really important to point out is that Dave is a senior chief will be one of three, four senior chiefs in the second division. That's responsible for a third of the Marine Corps ground combat element, war fighting power, right? Like the second Marine division is one of three. Well, technically there's four divisions, but there's that one's a reserves division, right? But the, the big three realistically that entire medical capability that goes along that war fighting unit is heavily influenced by the chiefs of the second Marine division. And so with that as a perspective, can, can you tell me how, how chiefs influence the war fighting of second Marine division? How do we influence them to, to be able to do this war fighting thing more effectively, utilizing relationships and just the experience that we have? Yeah, great question, man. I, I would say that's it's a few different ways to do that, but it's it all comes down to your mindset, right? So first, understanding where you're at and, and the magnitude of what what we're doing, that it's not a day job. What we do, uh, though we are not, there's no rounds flying at us. Lives are in the balance, whether that's from a, a suicidal perspective. People are going through a lot of difficult things, and we need to take that on and understand that. How does the chief's mess influence the warfighting capability of the 2nd Marine Division? I would say twofold. One, it's going to be the, the sailors themselves. So often a sailor will do what their chief either does or allows, period. If the chief is walking in at nine o'clock and the doors open at eight, that chief is wrong and he will have a negative influence. We can't overlook the negative influence that we have. We are, by nature of our rank, looked at as the person who sets the gold standard. If my chief does it, I can, whether he's looking or not. So we have to hold ourselves accountable. And if it's 08 showtime, we should be there at 745 starting the coffee. More is expected of us as we increase in rank, not less. So our influence can be both positive and negative as senior enlisted leaders. And I would challenge any senior enlisted leader listening right now to, to take a look in the mirror and ask themselves, hey, has my influence been positive or negative? Because in my opinion, there is no neutral influence. No one is neutral. You are either moving forward or backward. Stagnation is not a thing. So we have the opportunity to influence because of the nature of the rank and those who have gone before us. That anchor has power, not because it's on my collar, but it's because it's been on collars for 100 years influencing running the Navy. So we have to remind ourselves that what we're doing today is not only for the sailors that we have, but that we have the unique opportunity to shape someone's career and it can be positive or negative. So we got to hold ourselves to a very high standard. And so go to work on time, man. Do something difficult. If you're, if you're a chief, you have the autonomy to really do what you think is best. At 1-6, we were running trauma lanes on a weekly basis inside my BAS. I went to my BC because we have that unique opportunity where, yeah, we're just an E-7, but we are the senior enlisted leader within that infantry battalion or regiment. And we have open door walk-in with the 04, 05, or 06, 04, 05, 06, depending on what level you're at. And that is something that no other E-7 has. No gunnies walking into the BC. I walked into the BC, said, hey, sir, it's about to get really loud in here because I'm going to have 40 dudes screaming at two dudes in the dark. There's going to be blood flying everywhere. Are you cool with that? And he said, go get him. Go get him, chief. I said, okay, I'm all over him. 
So I would say that because of our nature, our ability to walk on the command deck and, and say, hey, here's where I'm going. I took your guiding principles and your philosophy and your warfighting pillars, and I'm going to put those into HSS, health service support. I'm going to take these warfighting functions and, and see where I fit in them and then create a good unit. So we do have this unique opportunity and I would challenge you to use it. I would challenge everyone to use it, especially if you got an anchor on your chest. Use it for the better betterment of the sailors and Marines in your charge and for the operational effectiveness of that unit uh, because we absolutely can degrade it. And we degrade it by, oh, there's a battalion hike? Nah, I got chief stuff to do. Oh, th- this, is, this is what you're doing? Nah, I'm going to pass on the McCree. I don't really feel like going because we have that opportunity. I would say that's negative. So I highly encourage you to, to take a look in the mirror if you're listening to my voice right now and ask yourself if you're being a negative or a positive influence. And if you're being a negative one, great, change it. So tell me, what does the title doc mean to you? The title doc, it is such an intimate thing. It's hard to put into words, but I will try my best. It's deeper than brother. It's more than, than friend. It's, doc is someone who you can rely on in the darkest of times and in the best of times. It's that person who, when all hope is lost, is there to to stand and, and pick you up by the arm and keep you going. Doc is, it's a title that is without question earned and it's earned through oftentimes pain. It's earned through oftentimes mental, emotional, and physical anguish where we get to stand amongst warfighters and amongst these heroes and say we belong. To, to be a doc is so much more than a leader, than a corpsman, than a warfighter. It, it, it's all of those combined. It's a selfless individual who's willing to lay down their life for those around them, e- even when it's the bottom of the ninth and you're losing. It is the epitome, uh, in my opinion, of military medicine. Mm-hmm. Dude, that's so good. And, but I, I, I want to throw this out there. The biggest reason that I, I pitched to to Wayne that Dave should be on this podcast is because for me, like Dave's had a big impact. Dave's kept me motivated. Dave has been the guy where if I was having a bad day, he reached out and was like, hey man, just wanted to check in on you. And the thing that I hope that the listeners hear, because I'm sure that there's some enlisted guys out there who wonder if the people above them are actually human and actually care. And I want to remind you that yes, they do exist. They look a lot like Dave Shepardson. Thanks, brother. Love you, man. Love you too, bro. What is unique about amphibious medicine that someone like me who's in the army is used to just being on the ground all the time may not really appreciate when dealing with a casualty that might have occurred during an amphibious operation? I'm going to speak on this for a very brief respite and I'm sending it over to Pete because he's the real amphib guy. So I did work in amphibious raids. We shared a boathouse with the amphib phase of recon, but Pete is a reconnaissance independent duty corpsman. He, he knows this better than I. My experience is in the schoolhouse. So I dealt with gasoline and saltwater mixture burns and head trauma in the surf when you got 10 foot surf in San Diego at two in the morning at night and cricks are flipping and sending bodies everywhere. That's pretty easy to pull them to shore relatively quickly. So I'm going to defer to Pete on this one. Yeah. So amphibious operations, it kind of depends on where you're at in that spectrum, right? Am I in the surf zone? Am I on a lake? Am I on a shoreline? Whatever. A lot of people underestimate the impact of water on things, right? So for instance, Wayne, have you ever put on a tourniquet underwater? Yeah, no, I've never put a tourniquet on underwater. You should try it. 
The reality is that moving casualties in the water is different. Looking at different wounds and how they would affect somebody. If you have a sucking chest wound and you are in the salt water, like where's that water going, right? Which kind of leads you into, we actually, I don't think we, we are the ones that coined it, but we talked about a hydrothorax last week in regards to that specific injury pattern. The way you use litters, right? Like a talon litter, which is essentially the number one litter inside the military we've used for throughout the entire global war on terror is massively ineffective and painful in the surf zone or anywhere else. And so I think it's a lot of small things like that. I think it's a lot of things where we, it compounds other problems and really confronts the SOPs that we've already developed, which actually surprise for you, Dave, tomorrow we're doing some medical training after the ceremony. So uh, in the surf, if you want to stick around for it, you just let me know. I'm there, baby. Tell us your most memorable deployment experience. Hmm. I'm going to keep it light. We could do a we could do a dark version of this podcast if you'd run run back, but I'm gonna keep it really light. So one of my most memorable deployment experiences is a first deployment. It was a lot less kinetic, 30, 40 firefights over eight month period, a lot chiller than than the ones in Sangin. But the 2009 deployment, I had a good friend. His name was Lance Corporal Ellis. He was from East Los Angeles and he made a tattoo gun out of a CD player because we used those back then. CD player, motor, and a guitar string. And we made some ink out of some charcoal toothpaste and water. And me and my corpsman and three other devils got matching tattoos, which I still sport to this day on my leg. At the time, it made sense. But my wife gives me a hard time on it. It's a cross. It's a, it's a cross with a crosshair in the middle and it has the letters D-W-I-D on it, which... Like I said, at the time it made sense, it stands for die when I'm done. And and to us at that time, it, it really was, hey, we're here to do this job and, and I'm going to die when I'm done doing this job. Uh, so we're going to see it through. So that sticks with me to this day. People see it and like, oh, dude, are you in prison? Like, nah, Afghan. So <laughs> it sticks with me. Oh, dude, I love that so much. <laughs> so now that you're being promoted to E8 and senior chief, what do you think is the best leadership advice that you've gotten over your military career? Um, okay. This may come as a shock, but the first, what, some of the best advice I got was, was a, I do this thing. It's super nerdy, but we all carry these little green or black books around with us and we take notes in them for daily stuff. Well, I started many years ago, about 10 or 12 years ago. Anytime I was at a retirement ceremony or I heard someone was retiring because I generally work in a medical facility and some salty crustacean comes in like, oh, I'm retiring after 30, 100 years. Like, I would ask them this one question. I would say, hey, you're leaving this gun club and I'm in it. Uh, what is one piece of advice you can give me so I can continue to, to lead successfully? And this chaplain, of all people, looked me as a 06 chaplain after 30 years, looked me dead in the eye and he said, Chief, as soon as you stop believing in what you do, it's time to get the F out. And, and I, I believe in that. If you don't believe in what you're doing, that's okay. Go work at Burger King because there's a lot of people that do believe in this, in what we're doing here. So that's, that's a quick one. But, but the best leadership advice I have been given and, and could give is to be a servant leader, is to understand that we exist at all levels of leadership from the E4 corporal fire team leader all the way up to the commanding general of 2nd Marine Division, General Worth. We exist for the people that we lead or they don't work for us, we work for them. It is our job when tactically, administrative, and operationally feasible to put their wants, wills, and desires above our own and to take what they need to successfully operate and get that to them. Whether that's 
1306 or sorry, like an administrative form to get out early or an extension. Our, our existence needs to be self-sacrificial. It needs to be for the people to quote probably 400 different people. That's, that's, that's the best leadership advice I've ever been given as to put, put the people, any human being that you're working for as a leader above yourself. Dave, what is a key to living a balanced life in a job that can be so consuming and that has such real risks and costs mm. associated with it? Mm. Pete, that is a fantastic question, brother. So I don't believe in balance. Balance denotes equality. When I hear people say work-life balance, I try to swiftly correct them and say, balance denotes equality and it will never be equal. At times, we need to give more to operations. And at times, we need to give more to family. The, the key to that is what I like to call work-life synergy. The two need to move in flux. And this goes down to any leader out there. If you have the opportunity to send your dudes home or your, your people, dudes and chicks home at 10, send them home at 10. And if you can't, then don't. You need to gauge that situation. And at times, our job requires everything, even, even down to this podcast. My, my son's at his first baseball practice. said, Daddy, can you come? I said, no. My brother Pete asked me to do this thing, and I'm going to do it for him. And, and I've taught them from an early age, mostly using scripture, that we put other people first. And, and so that work-life balance, sometimes our families suffer, and I hate to see it impact families. I think that if we can take just a quick inventory if we try to balance it, it's, you're going to, it's going to be unbalanced. But if you have that synergistic mindset to say, hey, these two things need to work together. And, and when I can, I'm going to devote everything I have to my family. I am going to pour myself out. The second I walk through the door, it's about my wife and kids. And if I need to take a call, I'm going to take the call. But then I'm jumping back in to play wh whatever we started playing life. But it's a Mario life. Super cool. Highly recommend the board game. Got to play games with your kids. But be all in when you can. When you're at work, be all in. When you're at home, be all in. You can't be, if I, and this is real quick, just want to put this out there since I got a small audience. I highly encourage people not to take their rank, position, or job into their household. If I walked into this house and I was a chief, I would have been divorced 15 years ago. And I've been with my wife for 18. I highly encourage that you take the characteristics that make a good father make a good husband, make a good son, friend, brother, and you take those to work and you apply those characteristics as a chief, as an officer, as a surgeon, as a doctor, as a, as a nurse, instead of the other way around. I think that this culture that we live in where we see so much divorce in the military isn't just because of the high op tempo and, and the inability to have balance, because there is no ability to. The nation calls, we go, thanks Uncle Sam. But it's, it's important to take those characteristics that make you a good man and take those and add them to your job. Because if you take the characteristics that make you a good E7 or E8 or 04, 05, and you take them home, you will destroy your family. So don't. Don't do that. Do the opposite. Mm. Mm. And, and something I want to point out, right? Dave, how long have you been married? I've been married for 15. 15. Okay. And you've got four kids. Yes, sir. Uh, I've been married for almost 12. I've got three. I just really want to point out how abnormal that is, mm. like, for, especially for enlisted guys. And I think that it's really important to bring up is that we, we have all at different times sacrificed a lot for our families and our families have sacrificed a lot for us. And the people that tend to have families that stick together over time appreciate that sacrifice and the growth that comes from it on both sides. And then also 
is willing to understand and, and say, hey, this is too much, right? And you, you have to know when to call it quits, know when to not volunteer for a thing or to go on a deployment or to go to another hard assignment. Maybe it's just time to take a really boring assignment because that's what's good for your family, even though it's not good for your career. That, and then I, the one thing that my wife told me after we went through a lot of hard times, whenever I dealt with all my stuff in 2017, she said, we would have gotten a divorce, but you wouldn't quit. And I was like, hey, man, I'll take that. That might be the only thing I'm good at anymore. But like, that is something that I, I will I will ride or die on that. And I'm happily married now. And she's still amazing. So it's pretty cool. Well, since we're on this topic, I'm going to ask one last question, Dave. And what would you say is the best advice you could give someone who's married with a family who's going on a deployment or with their return? Oh, Pete, how many deployments you've been on, brother? Four. Yeah, you're, you're, I'm only a three. I'm, I got robbed of one. But uh, <laughs> the best advice I could give to a, a person with, with a family that's deploying is open lines of communication beforehand on, on expectations. Managing expectations is critical. And then doing your best to build a support network for your family while you're away. Whether that's paying the extra money to move her out to her family or moving the family out here. Building a community around your wife before you leave should be mandatory. I don't think it should be optional. I think it should be something, it's something that I check on as a chief. Hey, who's your wife going to be talking to when you're gone? You need to build a community around your wife. And if it's her family, great. If it's a church family, great. If it's your neighborhood, perfect. Building that support network because at times you can't be there. I remember my first pump, I got to use a sat phone once every two weeks for five minutes was my communication time. Second pump, same thing. One sat phone every two weeks for 10 minutes to say, hey, I'm alive and then keep pushing. So as you move, as we move forward, we don't know what this next fight's going to look like. Could be, could be old school, eight months you're gone and, and you're waiting for someone to step on your doorstep. So highly encourage, build that community around your family, pour into your family while you're, while you're at home, do everything you can to do, everything you can do to pour yourself out for your family so that while you're away, they're doing everything they can to welcome you home with open arms. And something I would just toss on the back end of that is, because I just had this conversation literally like last week with one of my guys, was speak to them in a way that they can understand whenever you're describing what you're going to be doing on a deployment, right? Because I think it's, we get kind of caught up in our, the way that we look at things. Oh, well, I'm going to be doing operations in this region. Like that's complete gibberish to someone that doesn't understand anything about the military. But Speak to them about real risk. Speak to them about real connectivity as best as you understand it. And then ultimately reassure them of your relationship, right? Like, hey, like, I care about you. This has a purpose and it too shall pass. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's great advice. So, Dave, what would you like for your legacy in military medicine to be? That's a, that's a strange question, Wayne, and I like it because it challenges me. My legacy in military medicine, I'm going to say I, I would, I, I, it's got to be a selfless leader. A legacy is something weird to say, this is what I want it to be, but it's important because you're having hindsight and, and 2020 in the moment. So Wayne, I'm going to take that as a challenge and, and I'm going to write out more or less a philosophy of what I want my legacy to be. And I'm going to start striving towards that because I, I don't have an easy cookie cutter answer for it. So thank you, Wayne, for challenging me on that. Ooh, I, I can throw in at least on what his legacy is as far as I can see it. And that's that he is, he's a selfless leader, like he wants to be. Ultimately, something I think that's really important to note about Dave is that it, when I say motivated, that comes with a certain connotation in the military of like, don't want to hang out with that guy. Mm -hmm. But really what that means is that he's deeply passionate about the work and that that challenges people. 
And that also encourages people. And so once again, yeah, Dave, you're the man. Uh, thanks, Pete. Well, Dave, and can you, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you both for your service to this country and to military medicine. Thank you, Wayne. I appreciate you having me. Thanks, Wayne. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.